0: Good evening. Please turn with me to Romans chapter 6, Romans 6. Uh, I'm here tonight because uh, John English's father passed away and he needs to be with his father or be with his family. And so uh, I was asked to preach. And so as way of introduction, there's really no more doctrinally rich book than the book of Romans. If you wish to understand the purposes of God within the Christian life, you can't avoid turning to the book of Romans. The internal struggle of man is revealed all throughout this book. Uh, Sin, salvation, holiness are put on full display in this book. And most importantly, I believe the love of God is revealed most clearly in this book. I've been devotionally studying uh, the book of Romans and particularly Romans chapter 6 for the past month. And I've been reading a commentary by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, he's, uh, he's, he's this great British uh, preacher, he was, uh, and it's just one of the most rich things I've ever read. And I would encourage you, if you want to study the book of Romans uh, closely, pick up his commentary. Much of the truth that will be conveyed tonight comes from really weeks of wrestling through his commentary, which I recommend any thoughtful reader. Now, as we come to chapter 6, it's very common to take chapter 6 and 7 of Romans and think this is only dealing with the doctrine of sanctification, which is the process in which we are working out our salvation. And yes, there are s- significant truths that we, uh, that we see here that help us grapple with sanctification. However, my hope tonight is to show you that the Apostle Paul has not finished the important doctrine of justification by faith alone. He is showing us in these chapters the benefits, really chapters 6, 7, and 8, the benefits of our justification which carries us forward all the way through this life. So in light of that, I'd encourage you to read with me now verses 1 through 4, and we'll spend much of our time in verses 1 and 2. It says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us The words that are found in the book of Romans that teach us about your holy will, your holy purposes. Father, we thank you, God, that you have not left us in the dark regarding these things. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have brought us into union with your son, that we benefit from bearing out the name of Christ amongst the world. Father, thank you, God, that you are right now marking a way for this church, mourning you, to present their lives as holy and blameless before you. Father, I pray that even tonight we would see just another glimpse of your will being done, that tonight our hearts would be overjoyed with what you have done for us, so, Father, help us to walk in humility. Help us to listen. Help us to even bear the word on our minds and our hearts, so that we would go forward. That we would go forward in this life, walking out this salvation, in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, as we begin this uh, this section, I'm sure many of you realize this, but. Up until the 16th century, it was, not regu- it was not a regular occurrence to see chapter and verse. So chapters and verses really came in later. In fact, uh, the Geneva Bible was the first English edition to do so in 1560. So the first time we see in English words chapter and verse was 1560. So the book of Romans was meant be read as a letter. It was meant to be understood as a whole. This evening we're going to begin looking at it more as a letter and then go into particular verses in chapter 6. So for the first few moments we're going to do a quick survey of chapters 1 through 5 in hopes that we can understand really what's going on in chapter 6 a little better. So Paul doesn't start immediately with the most important thing that he's going to address in this book, which is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Uh, He doesn't start there. He rather starts with sin. He starts with this thing that all of us bear in common. He starts with the fact that every single man is dead in their trespasses and sin, both the Gentiles and the Jews. We have in fact all inherited this curse of sin from Adam in chapters 3 we see that no man no matter how good you might think you are no man is right before God in and of their own works you're actually dead you're dead because you have inherited this curse then in chapters 3 and 4 we see that Paul addresses our justification our right standing, so to speak, before a holy and just God. And this only comes through justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. Actually, our justification comes apart from the law. It comes apart from our circumcision. It comes apart from our parents. It comes apart from, apart from our spouse. It comes apart from really anything other than the person of Christ. This is extremely important. This is extremely important as we progress through the book of Romans and as we progress in the Christian life. This is the way in which those who are the bride of Christ are saved. They are saved by faith, only by faith in Christ. This is the way the old covenant worked as well. If you'll turn to Romans 4, I want to show you this. Romans 4 verse 2 says this, for if Abraham was justified by works. He has something to boast about. He has something to gain in and of his own works. But not before God. Not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed. He came to Christ. He trusted in Christ. He, he put his hope in Christ alone. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, hear this. If you want to come in by your works and stay in by your works, this is what happens. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And you don't want your wages to count as your due. I don't want my wages, my works, to be counted as my due. I want Christ's work and his work alone to be counted as my due. I want Christ and him only to be my salvation. Not me, not anything that I do in this life. Verse 5, this is important. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Only our faith, faith in him, that's the only way in which we get righteousness. So our hope rests solely in Christ alone, the one who created us, the one who entered into the world to die for us. Then in chapter 5, if you want to turn over there, this is where we'll be momentarily. We see that through through that justification, we see really this first benefit of our justification. Verse verse 1 of chapter 5. This justification now brings us Peace with God. We were once enemies. We were once apart from the kingdom of God. We once hated God, but now we're friends. We're no longer enemies. See, even in chapter 5, Paul has not left us, really left this great doctrine of justification. Rather, he begins the benefits. We see that salvation here is certain, it's fixed. It's yours today, it's yours tomorrow, it's yours the next, and it's yours the next. If you have faith in Christ, it's yours. In fact, Paul says in chapter 5, verse 11, look down there, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have, what? Now. Now received reconciliation. Not that we will receive reconciliation. We have right now, If we have trusted in God, if we have trusted in Christ, received reconciliation. Your standing before God is secure. It is certain, and hear this word, it is immediate upon conversion. Upon true belief in Christ, it is yours. Lloyd-Jones says this, Paul wants these Romans to realize that the whole redemption is theirs presently. Presently. It's a beautiful word. So Paul begins to work it out over the next few chapters and shows how nothing can come between them and their guaranteed end. And what's our guaranteed end? It's communion without sin in heaven with a holy God and his son, Jesus Christ. That's beautiful. That's the crescendo. Paul ends with this in chapter 8 that there is no trial, there's no tribulation, there's no work of evil that can thwart what the believer has presently right now and what the believer will have to come. As Adam gave us sin in death, he gave us the curse of unrighteousness. Christ has given us righteousness and eternal life. So from chapters 5 through 8, the Apostle Paul is wanting us to see all the blessings all the guarantees that come along with our justification. With what we have already seed upon faith in Christ. Now, before we go into verse 1 of chapter 6, we need to think about the statement that is made right before chapter 6. We often want to jump straight to chapter 6 and we forget about what's happening before, the context before. In verse 20 and 21, if you look down, of chapter 5. Paul says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, as I First read those verses. As I really read those verses many, many years ago, what came to my mind was this. Okay, Paul, I wasn't smart enough to keep reading, by the way. Okay, Paul, I now don't have to worry about my sin if grace is abounding all the more, right? Doesn't that mean the more I sin, the more I'll know of God's grace? I mean, I'm not understanding what you're saying, Paul. Who doesn't really want that trade-off? Think about it, something I've been used to my entire life, my own sin, is something I can continue in and grace will abound all the more? Of course not. The more you study of the book of Romans and really the whole canon of God's word, the more you realize this can't be true of a genuine child of God. If you are called into the kingdom of God and you are called into a kingdom of holiness, of right standing. And this is what chapter 6 is seeking to deal with. The problem that arises out of verses 20 and 21 is a problem that we call antinomianism. Y'all want to learn a word tonight? Let's say it together. Antinomianism. We'll do it one more time. Antinomianism. It's This definition, really, without law, no law. In fact, we are tempted to think that since God is long-suffering, then I can continue in my sin, forgetting the law of God exists, and living out this licentious lifestyle. I have the authority now. My chains have been broken. Honestly, my, my own particular greatest temptation in this world is to think, oh, it's okay. It's all right. It's all right. There's there's a grace for that particular sin later. And when I think that way, when I say those words, oh, there's grace for that, I tend to never think about the giver of the grace. I never tend to think about Christ. I forget the price in which Christ paid to reconcile me from that sin. Now, forget that I'm actually right now if I'm in Christ united to him fully. And that is what Paul is now going to address in chapter 6. Let's look at verse 1. It says in verse 1, What shall we? We say then. Paul understands this could be a collective problem. This is something that is dealt with individually but also corporally. Sin is ongoing, that there are some of us who have no sense of the purposes of God's law but rely only on His grace. This problem is something that has or could infect the entire church. A little leaven does in fact leaven the whole lump. Spurgeon says, Family, brothers, and sisters, it is a precious doctrine that saints are safe, that they're safe and secure, but it is a damnable inference that they may live as they want. It is a glorious truth that God will keep his people, but it is an abominable falsehood that sin will do them no harm. Remember, he says this, remember that God gives us liberty, not license. God does, in fact, free us From the bondage of sin. But he frees us to love. He frees us to love his law. Once we hated his law. But now he frees us to love it. Now he frees us to take joy. In communion with him. By obedience. To him. We don't have the license to go on sinning. Rather we have the freedom to obey. We have the freedom to love. We have the freedom to cherish the things. God cherishes. In fact when Paul says. Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? What does he say? He says these three words, by no means. Don't do it. Some translators believe there's enough emphasis here to say, God forbid. May it never be that we would say that. Therefore, our aim as brothers and sisters in Christ is to walk hand in hand to the gates of heaven knowing that some will come in wounded by their own sin wounded by the flesh, wounded by the world and wounded by the devil now, you can ask the question at this point Jordan, what then is the purpose of our justification by faith alone, if you're now going to tell me that I have to live a holy life that now a holy life should be my desire I mean, didn't you already tell us that we're not saved by our own works? Well, Paul goes forward and turns our attention back to what has taken place in us. What shall we say then, he says? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The trouble often with believers is the fact that, they're, that in their sin, in their rebellion, in their evil works, they've forgotten who they've become. They've forgotten that sin no longer reigns because they have been united to Christ in his death and resurrection. The Apostle Paul says, We who died to sin. We who died to sin. Instead of remembering our position as dead to sin, we try to justify our sin. Look, Jordan, I have urgence. It's not bad to watch that show or that movie or that YouTube clip or that Snapchat or that TikTok. It's not bad for me. We not only justify our sin, but we tend to hide our sin. We act like Adam and Eve in the garden thinking God can't see our sin if we just hide behind a bushel. I don't want others really to know my struggles. I don't want others to know I'm angry or discontent or jealous. And when we do this, when we do these actions, and we all do these actions at times, when we do this, we forget that we are dead to sin. We're dead to that sin. If you zone out right now, if you start falling asleep, you're going to miss something extremely important. Something extremely vital. So hone in just a little longer. In the original Greek, I know that's ironic, but I'm quoting something from the original Greek. In the original Greek, Paul uses the aorist tense for the word dead or death. And the aorist tense always points to an event that has already happened. It's been concluded. Paul is not describing something that is a process at this moment, though elsewhere we do see sanctification is a process. He's not describing really a present condition, a condition that you have right now. No, this event of death to sin has occurred if you are a believer. Now, I want to give you a few heretical views of this text. Some heretical views have come out of this teaching, and you're tempted to believe these things because I'm tempted to believe these things. Some people teach if you are, in fact, a Christian, then you are already perfect. You are dead to the influence, to the power, and to the control of sin. Sin is just something in the past for me. It's something that I don't do anymore. I'm I'm now pushing to greater and greater realities of God's glory. Well, this can't be true, right? This can't be true. Why? Why can't this be true? Because not only does the word talk about our Christian warfare all over the epistles. Every epistle you go to, it talks about our Christian warfare. But we also have this thing called experience. We have this thing called our own life that says it's not true. Who in this room? Raise your hand. I hope you don't. Who, so don't raise your hand. Who in this room has not experienced their own sin today? This very day. I sure have. This teaching of this verse of Christian perfectionism is just bonkers. It's ridiculous compared to the reality of our own lives. Secondly, second heretical teaching. Some people teach that we ought, O-U-G-H-T, ought to be dead to sin we're not actually dead to sin but we should be beloved when the translators and and we translate this Greek word into English there is no ought in this verse it says you have died to sin this teaching would have you think that you get in by grace and you stay in by your own dying to sin your own works of righteousness. This teaching goes against the very grain of why there was a reformation in the first place. No, we get in by grace and we stay in by grace. It's all of God's grace that you're even here tonight, that you're even listening tonight, that you even have ears that are perking up at some of these truths tonight. It's God's grace. Lastly, some would say, that we have died to the guilt of sin. In a sense, this is true. The covenant of works no longer condemns the believer, for we are in the covenant of grace. Yet within the wonderful covenant of grace, there is still the precious law of God that shows us our remaining sin, shows us our magnificent Savior's character, his beautiful character. He's never murdered, he's never stole, he's never committed adultery, and it guides us. This law guides us to how we are to bear out the fruit of salvation. So really, none of these ideas are correct. So what's the answer? What's the answer? If we have, in fact, died to sin in the past, what does that mean for us? Well, great question. I'm glad you asked. Paul is not telling us about something we do in these verses rather he is telling you about who you are he's telling you about who you are we are no longer under the reign of sin the dominion of sin rather we have been brought under the reign of grace how is that possible it's through faith it's through faith a faith which ties us, which unites us to Christ. It unites us to his work. It unites us to his death. It unites us to his resurrection. At the very moment of your conversion, you died to the reign of sin. Amen. Amen. At the very minute you are saved, there's no more dominion of sin in your life. Now, gotta go back. I get that there could be an opposition to this. But Jordan, I still sin. I still fall. I'm still tempted. My jealousy, pride, lust, anger, and covetousness still exist in my flesh. Lloyd-Jones responds to that opposition. He says these words. There's a difference between your position or status and our experience what we feel you may feel that you're far from god but if you are converted you are near to our god and he is near to you in this particular moment of the book of romans paul is concerned about our position and not our our experience you are either under the reign of sin living in your rebellion not repenting or you're under the reign of grace putting off the old man and putting on the new, loving Christ, seeking to adore Christ. Other passages that are, just speak so sweetly of these things. Other passages, Colossians 1.13. Paul says, you have been delivered. I love that word, delivered. I didn't deliver myself, he delivered me. You have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son. He delivered and He transferred you into this new reign, this new dominion of grace, where His Son reigns, where evil reigns no longer. He goes forward in Colossians. Verse 22, He says this, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him he does this now it's happened Paul in Philippians 3 I love these words he says our citizenship is in heaven you may not see it very clearly right now but if you think about those words he does not say it's going to be in heaven, right? He says your citizenship right now is in heaven. And some of you say, man, I'm so close to my sin. I'm so often close to this world. I'm so often close to the things of this world. How can my citizenship, citizenship right now be in heaven? Because you believed Because you are believing because you are convicted because you have a conscience that hates your sin our position is fixed and it is secure what a delight to know and understand and believe that my position does not just come and go as I come and go hear that what what a delight what a beauty To understand and to believe that my position does not just come and go as I come and go to the table. As I come and go to God's word. As I come and go to prayer. Let me conclude with three points of practical application. Three points of uh, practical application really regarding our position under, under the reign of grace. First, Our positions under the reign of grace are, in fact, our identities. It's who we are. You might be a husband, a wife, a son, or a daughter, yet the fact that you have entered into the reign of grace through faith in Christ alone is your ultimate identity. Those who want to say that they are a gay Christian don't understand that Christ died. To release us from the domain of sin, I no longer am connected to that sin. No longer connected to it. I'm released from it. I can now live out a holy life apart from it. Those who justify their sin don't understand the fact that God's justice was poured out on His own Son. Don't go back. Don't run back this week or the next hour to the old ways, your old patterns, your old sins. There's much more freedom in the joy of Christ and in the reign of grace that you are in. You're in by belief. Keep believing. Keep trusting. Keep hoping. Go back to this Christ. He is your identity. Secondly, our positions under the reign of grace show The enemies of God that Christ's work actually merited salvation. That it actually merited salvation. You know what? The devil wants to think, hey, this didn't work. When Jesus died on the cross, Pilate likely gasped in relief. Thank God he's dead. The Pharisees probably laughed in hatred. This Jesus said he was the Messiah, the King of the Jews, yet his friends all abandoned him, left him beaten and tortured to die on a cross. Yet, Christ throughout his life promised fruit would come from his death and ultimately his resurrection. But had, not, had men not been changed from sinner to saint, had men not been changed from goat to sheep, from the dominion of sin to the reign of grace, Christ's work would have all been in vain. It would have all been silly. But your proof, your proof, you being in the reign of grace, it's proof of his resurrection, it's proof of his work. Your lives are a very display of the power of, cro- of the cross. Do you know that? Every day you wake up, every single day you wake up is a display of. Of the power of the cross. And the power of his resurrection. You are new. Live as a new man. Lastly. Our positions. As children of God. Cannot be changed. And I've hinted at this all throughout this sermon. Our positions as children of God. Cannot be changed. Once you have been brought into the house of God. You should make yourself comfortable. This is your home. Put your feet up at the. At the table, you're here. Sup with our Lord. Know our Lord. Read his word. Pray. Talk to him. You may try your hardest to leave God, and some of you will, and some of us do. But if you are his and he is yours, there is no power, zero power that can overcome you, that can overcome his will for your life. You surely will fall into sin, but you must return to the grace of the master of the house. He will receive you. He will receive you. Christ receiveth sinful men, even me, with all my sin. Come back. Come back to this one who has loved you. Come near to this one who has loved you. Beloved, don't you want to glorify this God who's laid down his life for you don't you want to glorify this God for the great things he has done let's pray Father in heaven thank you Lord for all the great things that you have done for giving us new identities for making us children of God for giving us faith thank you for the benefits of our faith in Christ Thank you, Lord, that we are just here as mere vessels for your glory. God, allow us to love you, to love your word, and to love one another as you have called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.